Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights, Mormon 1 through 6 today with additional insights from Mormon 7 and the Words of Mormon. We will be talking about Mormon today, and if you want to learn more about Mormon as a person, Book of Mormon Central has a fabulous short little essay about Mormon, and you can look up Noi number 226. You'll find the link below. Now, we'll begin with, this is an interesting set of chapters today, and I'll tell you, of all the times I read the Book of Mormon, when I get to this part, I just think maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time that people will finally listen to Jesus, to his words, to the scriptures, to the prophets. And I have to laugh at myself every time I read the Book of Mormon. I just hope it'll be different. I hope that the people will really listen. And sometimes it can be extremely discouraging to read these chapters of Mormon and just watch what happens as people suffer the consequences for a lack of faithfulness to God. But despite all that, I find it fascinating that despite the, the incredible discouragement that Mormon must have seen in the world around him, living in such difficult times, here is what he says to his son, Moroni, in one of his letters. Now this comes from Moroni chapter 9, 25 and 26. My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his suffering and death and the showing his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Amen. I find that absolutely powerful. Actually, in some ways, those are the very last words we get from Mormon, at least according to Moroni, is that phrase. After everything that Mormon has written, including the difficulties of his own lifetime, what does he focus on? All these beautiful truths. And so we invite all of us, we live in a world of difficulty and challenge, to remember the words of Mormon echoing through the centuries, preserved lovingly and faithfully for us in our day, revealed now that we, like Mormon, as he told his son Moroni, focus on Jesus Christ, focus on all that he did to show love and salvation, his long suffering the hope of his glory, his eternal life, his grace. So even though what we're about to talk about might be hard in some cases to listen to, remember that ultimately it's the love and grace of God that gives us hope, and that is one of the main purposes of the Book of Mormon. To provide a second witness to that idea in Moroni chapter 9, uh, notice chapter 5 in Mormon. So Mormon 5, verse 8. 
Now behold, I, Mormon, do not desire to harrow up the souls of men in casting before them such an awful scene of blood and carnage as was laid before mine eyes, but I, knowing that these things must surely be made known, and that all things which are hid must be revealed upon the housetops, and also that a knowledge of these things must come unto the remnant of these people, and also unto the Gentiles, who the Lord has said should scatter this people, and this people should be counted as not among them, therefore I write a small abridgment, daring not to give a full account of the things which I have seen because the wickedness and the sorrow is just overwhelming, is basically what he's telling us. Now, uh, as Taylor has already introduced, the, the difficulty that you have this week with these chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to chapter 6 in the book we call Mormon, uh, this is painful. This is it, – it's very sad to watch a people who you know, we, we've watched their trajectory, they've had their ups, they've had their downs, they've struggled with secret combinations and wars and, and bad things before with a lot, of, uh, a lot of tragedies. And then Jesus came in 3rd Nephi and he establishes Zion among them and they get 200 years of absolute perfect society and everything's wonderful, and then the second half of fourth Nephi, you watched this decline, pretty serious decline away from Zion, and then you pick up the book called Mormon, and starting in chapter one and two and three and four and five and six, that's what we get for our scripture block today is it's the ultimate destruction of these people who are called uh, the Nephite nation. Um, there's no easy way to cover this. Uh, traditionally, when I'm, when I'm teaching a class uh, on the entire Book of Mormon, I'll spend maybe three minutes or four or five minutes in, in these chapters because of the heavy nature of them. It's important for us to know about this. The Book of Mormon is written for our day, President Benson said, and made that very clear. And Mormon, who saw our day, and he gave us the reason why he wrote it, all things must be revealed upon the housetops. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to give you a full depth of detail of everything that I'm seeing, but it's important for us to know what can happen to a society, a people, even a people who has at one time been so enlightened and so filled with, with goodness and truth that you can't take that for granted and say, oh, I, all is well in Zion, Zion prospereth, I can, I can relax in my faith. We have to keep finding ways to, to connect and stay connected with heaven and move forward. Now, with that background, let's jump in to Mormon chapter 1 to the beginning of the story, and we're going to go on this little journey through the life of Mormon, who, by the way, is one of my all-time heroes in Scripture. I love Mormon because he's, he's an unsung hero. There are a lot of times in my life when I've actually thought, I want to be more like him. Why? Because 
here's a guy who is surrounded by opposition, he's surrounded by wickedness, he's surrounded by tribulation and trials and bad things going on everywhere he looks, and yet he stays faithful. He never lets the, the bad stuff in his environment become bad stuff inside of him. He's able to stay on the covenant path and press forward faithfully in the face of incredible opposition. Second reason I want to be more like Mormon is because he, he quietly does what God asked him to do without drawing attention to himself, without, without having you walk away from the book focusing, focusing primarily on him. He tells you the stories of Jesus among the Nephites. He tells you the stories of, of King Benjamin and Abinadi and Alma and all the way down, even Samuel. He, he's, he's including all these stories, but they're coming to us through the, through the lens of Mormon, and uh, I love that, being able to be a window to the, to the heavens, a window to God's love and his goodness without drawing attention to the window. I want to be more like that. So, notice how his story begins. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he tells you he's going to uh, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard and call it the Book of Mormon. Up to this point, he's been writing in third person predominantly. Now, it's his turn to tell his own story, so he shifts into everything now first person. About the time that Amaron hit up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age. So here you go, in the, in the quick timeline of Mormon's life, the, the elements that we know about, starting at about ten years of age, you'll notice by the time he's writing this, he's going to be quite a bit older, and it's not exact. And I love the fact that it's not exact because for us, when you think back to your early teenage years and your eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-old years, it's kind of fuzzy, and I love that this early part is kind of fuzzy for him as he's going back in time using words like about. So we're going to go from about ten years old until the last battle at Camorra when he's about seventy-three years old. Uh, that's the lifespan that we're going to be covering and looking at different elements that are going on, not so you can be experts on Mormon's life, but so that you can see a very real person, a son of God, who is doing the best he can to fulfill his life's mission, but he didn't understand his life mission here, nor here, nor here. His life mission just kept unfolding as God brought more and more and more responsibilities, commandments, and requirements, and opportunities into his life as he pressed forward on the covenant path, line upon line, precept upon precept. I like that pattern. So we start at age 10, Amaron coming to him. This is odd because if you look at the scenario, Amaron is the keeper of the entirety of the Nephite records and all the other things associated with those records, armaments, uh, treasures that we're told in some of the accounts, that this huge repository of everything that represents 
all of the history of the Nephites and the Jaredites down to this time. Now here's this guy, he's getting to the end of his life, he looks around at his society and says, hmm, who am I going to turn these records over to? This, this huge repository in the cave, uh, in the hill Shim, in the land Antum, uh, who am I going to turn these over to? Look what he says. I, being about ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of learning my people, and Amaron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. Therefore, when ye are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember the things that ye had observed concerning this people. And when you're of that age, go to the land Antum unto a hill which shall be called Shem, and there have I deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. That's bold, turning all of that over to a ten-year-old saying, wait until you're a about 24 years old, then go get them. This is where they're hidden. The amount of trust placed in a 10-year-old, notice the two qualifying factors. Uh, you're a sober child and you're quick to observe. I think it's pretty clear that what he's saying is you're not a typical 10-year-old Mormon. You're very, very mature. You're, you're thinking clearly. You're thinking deeply. You're not like the other, the other families and the other kids in this, in this wicked society. And I believe that God inspired Amaron, obviously, to go to this particular kid who was raised up for this purpose. Notice also, thou art quick to observe. That tells us that Amaron didn't just walk down the street one day and say, oh, there's a kid, he looks different. Boom. It seems that Amaron had some association with this family. He knew what kind of a kid Mormon was. And this phrase, quick to observe, probably does mean he was very good at seeing the world around him and understanding and be able to explain and interpret what was going on. We see that throughout his text. I wonder if there's also a secondary meaning of quick to observe. What about observing the commandments, judgments, and statutes of God? If you actually look throughout scriptures, the way the word observe is used, it's often in relation to faithfulness, covenantal faithfulness, of how well people do at keeping God's commandments. And even at this young age, there may be something going on here that Mormon was quick to do the word of God. It's a beautiful insight because for, for us as Latter-day readers of this record, I don't know that it's as applicable to us to think, oh, good. Mormon was an observant kid. He, he, was, he was bright, brilliant, picked up on things very quickly versus saying he was probably some of that, but also he was quick to observe the commandments. He kept his, he kept his commitments even as a ten-year-old, um, and we can all try to follow that same example. Look now at verse 4. Behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder ye shall leave in the place where they are, and ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people. You'll notice Amaron didn't say, kid, when you get older, you're going to be the one who needs to go into this repository with all these records. Uh, Look at this image from our 3D 
uh, Mormon's Cave app that we have on at virtualscriptures.org. Look at, look at this huge collection of plates. Now, if you look here at this particular, um, uh, what you might call a large bookshelf, that's a, it's an artistic representation. We don't know what it actually looked like. We don't know how many were actually there. But you, you look at this large collection right here. This is called the Plates of Nephi, the Large Plates of Nephi. Amaron simply told him, go to that collection, and there towards the end, where I have written my last section, which was the finishing part of Fourth Nephi, you pick up there where I left off, and you keep writing the history of the Nephite people that you have, that you have and will observe in your own lifetime. That was the command. That's it. So it's later on when Mormon is has been working through this process of writing down the record that the Lord would have given him the command or the direction to say, okay, the end is near for these people, so I need you to go and now read all of that record and make new plates, no longer called the plates of Nephi, this time called the plates of Mormon, this new record that is going to be the, the means whereby all of this is going to get translated in the latter days and carried forth into, into all the world as the, the instrument for the gathering of the house of Israel. Wow, that's a bit overwhelming, but you'll notice Mormon wasn't given that at age 10. What he was given probably felt overwhelming to a 10-year-old to look forward to when he was 24 down the road, but God's going to give him those instructions line upon line, precept upon precept. Now, notice the next event, verse 5, I, Mormon, being a descendant of Nephi, and my father's name was Mormon. So it's interesting, we often overlook this. This is Mormon the Younger or Mormon uh, Junior. Just as a side note, there are no juniors in the Book of Mormon, even though Joseph Smith, who is our translator, happens to also be named after his father. He's Joseph Jr. There's not a single junior in the Book of Mormon. It's always just Mormon, my father's name was Mormon, or Alma, the younger, uh, never junior. Just a fun little side note as we, as we progress forward here. So it says, I, Mormon, being a descendant of Nephi, and my father's name was Mormon. Do you remember one of the defining features of Nephi physically? back in 1 Nephi chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, it, he used on a couple of occasions this phrase, being exceedingly young, nevertheless being large in stature. He's a big, strong kid for his age. Well, what do we know about Mormon here? We know some pretty interesting things are going to come to him at a very young age. So it's, it's as if he's taking after, physically, his ancestor way up the line, Nephi. They, this is going to be a, a large kid, very, very uh, big for his age. Notice the next event. It came to pass that I, being eleven years old, was carried by my father into the land southward, even to the land of Zarahemla. So at eleven, 
He leaves the land northward because his dad has to relocate the family. Probably a war ready to start. If you jump down to verse 8, it came to pass in this year there began to be a war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And it breaks out in the land where they'd just gone to. And later at, he's 15, 16th year, he becomes the chief captain. Now, can you imagine today our chief military leader being some 15 or 16-year-old kid? Now, I wonder if Mormon's father had been the chief captain and had died in the war, and as heredity, Mormon got that position. We actually have lots of stories throughout the ancient world. Like Alexander the Great, his dad had been the king of the Macedonians, and when, when Philip was assassinated, Alexander the Great became the next king. And we have lots of evidence in the Book of Mormon where father to son, the responsibility passes from father to son. So in addition to him being this mighty man, it may have also been a family duty, which is why maybe at age 16, sorry, age 15 to be more precise. But the, the most important thing is who he is as a person, both physically and spiritually. Yeah. He, uh, he, he stood out among his people physically, but because of his spiritual capacities and the gifts and the, the mission given to him by God, his, his name now will never be forgotten uh, in, in any future time moving forward because this book bears his name. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, notice verse 13, wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land insomuch the Lord did take away his beloved disciples and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. This is an important concept for us to understand in our day and age. When there aren't miracles, when there aren't healings, when there aren't wonderful things happening, it's not always because of the, the reasons skeptics give that God doesn't care, God's not powerful, God's not there, God's not capable of, of doing these things. You'll notice the reason they weren't there is because of the iniquity and the wickedness and the unbelief of, of humanity at this time. Verse 14, there were no gifts from the Lord and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. And I, being 15 years of age and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Notice, he's 15 when he sees the Lord. He's in a society that is so wicked that is so bad that there are no miracles, the Holy Ghost isn't coming upon any, and it's widespread, rampant sin and iniquity, and yet in the midst of that darkest of times, the Lord appeared to this young 15-year-old and he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. When I hear this word tasted of the goodness of Jesus, it automatically gets me to think, way back to 1 Nephi chapter 8 and the tree of life with that beautiful, delicious fruit that Lehi called his family to taste of. And we encourage you to look at the scriptures, how they use the phrase to taste, particularly when it comes to tasting the love of God. 
And I also wonder if there might be some beautiful wordplay going on because uh, in Mormon chapter 1, verse 15, where it says he knew of the goodness of Jesus, the word Nephi, our best understanding is that is an Egyptian word that means good, lovely, beautiful, or desirable. And so when Mormon says, I tasted of the goodness of Jesus, if we translate this back into Egyptian, he would have used a variant of the word, or the word itself, Nephi, to talk about the love of God. If you go back to 1 Nephi chapter 8, when Nephi is describing the fruit of the tree of life, he uses such words as beautiful and desirable. And all of these in Egyptian would have just been Nephi's name. So imagine for Nephi how lovely it would have been for him to be able to describe the love of God using the meaning of his own name. And here is now Mormon, centuries later, experiencing that same love, but identifying himself as a descendant of love, or Nephi, the descendant of goodness, or Nephi, the descendant of beautiful things, Nephi. And he talks about tasting of the powerful love of God, and he uses that lovely phrase of goodness. And we invite you, again, two things, to look at how the word taste is used in the Book of Mormon, particularly when it comes to partaking of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We also invite you to think about, when have there been times in your life you have tasted of the goodness of Jesus? When have you experienced the lovely, beautiful, desirable truths that come from God, and most importantly, when have you tasted the beautiful, desirable, lovely, good love that comes from God to each of his children? So here's the grand irony of all of this, verse 16. I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut, and I was forbidden that I should preach unto them, for behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God, and the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity. He's trying to spread the goodness, the desirable, the beauty. He's trying to say, look, just I have tasted, I know how good this is, I know how wonderful life can actually be, not this misery that you're living through, and his mouth is shut. He can't give them this, this desirable message, this good news, the glorious news of the gospel, because of their iniquity and their, their rebellion. And notice they had willfully rebelled. This wasn't something that they accidentally fell into, that they, they're sinning in ignorance. This is a willful rebellion, which is very different than somebody who, who sins in ignorance. Uh, notice he's, he's among them, but the Gadianton robbers are now rising up and infesting the land, so treasures become slippery. The Lord's cursed the land. They couldn't hold them nor retain them again. They can't hold on to anything. The very things that the devil entices them with become slippery. All of the treasures and the power and the glory of the world is so fleeting that it's not just that they lose it at death. In this case, they've gotten to the point where they can't hold on to it at all. 
they're living in this constant um, uh, fear of death and being robbed and iniquity surrounding everything that they're doing. Look at chapter 2. It came to pass that in that same year there began to be a war again between the Nephites and Lamanites, and notwithstanding, I being young, was large in stature. Hmm, sounds a lot like first Nephi. Therefore the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader or the leader of their armies. So he clarifies, I'm not the government leader, they just put me in charge of the armies. Possibly, if not probably, because it's a family legacy, a family line uh, calling or position. Look at verse 2, therefore it came to pass that in my sixteenth year I did go forth at the head of an army of the Nephites. Sixteenth uh, year means he's still fifteen years old, and he's uh, going to war at the head of an army of the Nephites. Look at verse 3. It came to pass that in the 327th year the Lamanites did come upon us with exceedingly great power, insomuch that they did, mark it, frighten my armies. Therefore, they would not fight, and they began to retreat towards the north countries. I think perhaps that's one of the reasons we need these, these difficult chapters so that we can see these contrasts between good and evil, right and wrong, light and dark, that we human beings are capable, regardless of how strong we've been in the past, we're capable of getting to the point where we are driven by fear rather than faith, where we stop fighting, we stop trying to, to overcome and resist opposition or temptation or addiction, and we run instead, or we give up. Uh, notice verse 4, they came, the Lamanites drove us out of this city, verse 5, they drove us also out of the city of David, so they're gathering in seven, there's this huge destruction, this huge lament, and now you come down to verse 10. It came to pass that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity and began to cry even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. Okay, so what we have here is uh, Mormon looking at the people thinking, okay, we're good, because remember the pride cycle? Pride leads to deeper sin, which leads to destruction, which leads to sorrow and lamentation, which leads to humility, and that humility will lead us to repentance, and repentance leads us to blessings, and those blessings will mount up and build up to lead us to great prosperity and unfortunately prosperity often leads us to pride, and we talked about this back in Hedelman a few months ago. Where are we in the pride cycle in chapter 2? They began to repent, they began to cry. Verse 11, thus there began to be a mourning and a lamentation of the land because of the things, and more these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. 
So he's thinking, wonderful, the destruction has led them to this intense sorrow, and now they've begun to repent. They're getting humble. They're going to turn to God, and because he's so long-suffering, he's going to forgive them, and he's going to give them blessings, and we're going to end up prospering again. Verse 12, it came to pass that when I, Mormons, saw their lamentations and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the saddest moments in the entire Book of Mormon where you see that this entire population of people has gotten to the point where they've, they've been built up in their pride and their sin and iniquity to the point where the Holy Ghost can't even be given to any, according to what he says there, uh, in, in chapter 1, they've experienced incredible destruction, they're sad, and what did it do? It led them to deeper pride and deeper sin, which is going to lead to deeper destruction. So we talked about back in Helaman the fact that the pride cycle can actually turn into a destruction cycle. If you're in the, the bottom of despair, the pit of despair because of destruction, and you don't choose to turn to God but rather become more prideful, this is the pattern that happens in the Book of Mormon. Look at uh, verse 14. They did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did uh, curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. Notice 15, came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again, and I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually, for I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. So notice what he does to try to get his people ready to go fight the, the Lamanites again. Here's this, this righteous leader, Mormon, surrounded by all these people who are, who are cursing God, but they're willing to fight for their lives. That's about it. Notice how he rallies them and, and gets them ready for battle. Verse 23, it came to pass that I did speak unto my people and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. If you like writing cross-references in your scriptures, in your margins, you could write Alma 46, verse 12, next to that verse, because if you look at Alma 46, 12, you'll remember that that was the incredible passage that talked about Mormon's uh, hero named Captain Moroni, his title of liberty, where he said, in memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives, and our children. 
Remember that? Notice the difference here. That's how Captain Moroni got his men to fight. It's worth fighting for these things, people, let's go. And it worked back in 73 BC. Now here we are with Mormon, with a group of people who have cursed God, totally turned their back on God. They've lost all sense of a connection with heaven, which what relig what religion means to reconnect. They have no more freedom. Once again, Satan keeps enticing everybody with this idea of get rid of liberty and have freedom to express yourself and to live your life and do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and with whomever you want. That's his plan, that's his idea, and that leads to bondage, not freedom. You, you ask these people, how free do you feel right now? They're on the run. There's no freedom, and there's no peace in all of their cursing of God and doing what they wanted to do, notice what they've gained for it. You know, brothers and sisters, when one serves the devil, one needs to be ready to receive wages from the devil, and what you're seeing in Mormon chapters 1 through 6 are the wages of sin, the wages of iniquity. This is the paycheck you receive when you turn your back on God, when you when you reject connections with heaven called religion, true religion, not the world's definition of, of organizations, and you lose freedom and you lose peace. What do they have left? They have their wives and their children, and notice what else he added to the list? Your houses and your homes. And how long is it going to be until they lose those? Once again, you give up God and it's just a matter of time before you lose all of these things on the list. Um, so, in verse, uh, or sorry, in chapter 3, notice how he addresses this issue in chapter 3, verse 2. It came to pass that the Lord did say unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent ye, and come unto me, and be ye baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared come unto me, build up again my church, you'll be spared. It, it's not too late. Brothers and sisters, it's never too late. If, if you're struggling, if you're wrestling with addiction or with a major faith crisis or with issues with people and trying to forgive or you trying to repent and overcome sin in any degree, it's never too late. If you repent, come unto him, be baptized, build up again his church, ye shall be spared. So verse 3, I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain, and they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them and granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. So we begin another cycle of this downward destruction that is, that is pending. Uh, notice they, they have this little victory the Nephites do in chapter 3. Look what it did, verse 9. Because of this great thing which my people, the Nephites, had done, they began to boast in their own strength and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren 
who had been slain by their enemies, and they did swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. So they, it's no longer a def defensive war for them. Now they say, because of this, we, we've proven we're so good and we're so strong, we're going to go down among the Lamanites and totally destroy them, which you can mark it, this is the uh, ultimate turning point in the war, and we, we begin our final descent starting at this point. Verse 11, it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and their abomination. And now Mormon starts to lament a little bit. Verse 12, behold, I had led them notwithstanding their wickedness. I had led them many times to battle and had loved them. Is this sounding like uh, an echo of how the Savior might feel about us? His love regardless of our, of our deserving that love, it's, it's always there. Notice it says, uh, I had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart, and my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. And he had delivered them three times before. Um, and then he finishes chapter 3 with some beautiful invitations to us. He kind of shifts away from the carnage and the bloodshed and the wickedness and the iniquity of his day, and he turns his attention forward in time to us. Look at this. This is beautiful. Verse 17, Therefore I write unto you Gentiles and also unto you house of Israel, when the work shall commence that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance, yea, behold, I write unto all the ends of the earth, yea, unto the twelve tribes of Israel. So he basically says, I, th this message is for everybody in the latter days. Verse 20, these things doth the Spirit manifest unto me, therefore I write unto you all, and for this cause I write unto you that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam, and you must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. And he wants us to believe the gospel, and he invites the Jews, the covenant people. Look at verse 22. I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he goes back into the awful uh, scene that was playing out before him. Now, have you ever thought about this? As Mormon is working his way through his life, he's fighting all these battles with the Lamanites. He's trying to defend the people. He's trying to preach to the people as the prophet role that he's taking. And not only that, he's raising a family. We know he's got Moroni coming along. So he has all these hats that he's wearing and he's trying to be good. Have you ever had the experience in mortality of pausing and realizing that you have more on your plate to accomplish than you have energy or time or resources to, to actually get through? Have you, ever, have you ever had one of those sickening moments where you 
you realize, it just kind of hits you, I'm not doing anything really well. I'm doing a million things partly. I I'm chipping away at a whole bunch of things, but I'm not doing anything really, really well. I love Mormon's story for when I have those experiences and I have them fre more frequently than I should, because Mormon's story shows me that I can be surrounded with incredible opposition and have really important things to do, not to the level of Mormon's mission to accomplish, but if I stay focused on that which matters most, which is God, and I stay humble and I keep going to him, he facilitates all of my time and energy resources to be accomplishing the things that need to happen for his kingdom to roll forward, and for me, that's my biggest takeaway from Mormon chapter 1 through 6, is watching this one guy, and we know that it's not just one guy. Even though she's not mentioned, we know he's married, we know he has a sweetheart, and we know that there's a, a partnership here as those two are moving forward, accomplishing things in the face of great adversity. It gives me hope for when I'm, when I'm struggling to, to do the things that, that I'm asked to accomplish in life. Look at chapter 5. He's leading them to battle uh, again. We're getting closer to the end. Look at verse 12. Now these things are written unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, and they are written after this manner, because it is known of God that wickedness will not bring them forth unto them, and they are to be hid up unto the Lord that they may come forth in his own due time, when he seeth fit that they come forth. So you'll notice Mormon saying, I don't know for sure when this is going to happen, but God does, and I love the fact that you get this other prophet in our day, Joseph Smith, who is also surrounded by a lot of iniquity, not to the level of Mormon, but he now gets the opposite responsibility to translate the record that was written by Mormon and Nephi and Jacob and later on Moroni. Uh, in the face of incredible adversity, um, having to move from place to place, keep in mind, if you look in Mormon's cave at that whole set of records, he doesn't just have to read all of those records, he has to decide what to include, what to leave out. He has to abridge that record onto these plates that are going to end up in our, in our hands today. And I love the fact that uh, God did his work through an instrument in the face of such great adversity. That gives me hope in my own life. Now we go to chapter 6, the last battle. We're at the Hill Cumorah, and you'll notice there are, he lists here, his numbers probably aren't exactly down to the individual person, but they're rough, rough guesses that are probably pretty close. He's talking about the different groups of 10,000 of his men who died. If you do the math here, it's over 230,000 Nephites killed at this last battle, and only 24 of them survive, which, by the way, Mormon is one of them that survived. He was wounded so badly on that last battle that the Lamanites passed over him thinking he was dead. And then he's writing chapters 6 and 7 after that point. We don't know how far after. Is it 
days? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it years? We don't know because he doesn't tell us. But if he was wounded so badly that they thought he was dead, it's possible that while, while he's writing these words, he's feeling the pains of those wounds from that battle, and that adds context to what he says here as he laments over his people. Notice verse 16, my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people, and I cried, O ye fair ones, how could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? Remember what Taylor was telling you about Nephi? Fair, beautiful, goodly, blessed. O ye Nephites, how could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? How could you have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? This is such a sobering set of passages. As I said earlier, every time I read the Book of Mormon, I just hope it'll be different this time. Now, there is hope that we all get to look at our own lives and say, am I willing to receive the embrace of Jesus who stands open and willing to fully receive us? And we don't have to repeat what we see in the Book of Mormon. And I think there's some beautiful literary things going on in this very sorrowful passage. We have the word Nephi, which proposals recommend uh, means fair in Egyptian. And there's another word in Hebrew, uh, it's nephil, and it means to fall. And I just think it's interesting here that Mormon, who's this very capable writer, may also at the same time be creating literary beauty in the original languages. He's talking about how the, the nephi have nephil, the Nephites have fallen, the fair ones have fallen. And so he's actually playing almost as if he's a bit like Shakespeare or an Isaiah with words to make the case that even if you are named fair and beautiful, it's not much of a change to do this if you walk away from God. In our own lives, we want to ask ourselves, do we want to be fair like the Nephites or do we want to get puffed up in the pride of all that God has given us or all that we believe that we have accomplished with our own, own hands and experience the fall. And that's the lesson that's here, is that we can learn from these people what not to do. Now, as he finishes chapter 6, he ends with chapter 7, which we'll cover in much greater detail next week, uh, but you'll notice his audience, the primary target for chapter 7. In fact, you could just label your chapter 7, Dear Lamanites, Love Mormon. It's a letter to them directly. He, he talks to them in loving, kind ways, these latter-day descendants of the very people who are going to kill him ultimately, he knows that, and who have, who have given him wounds to the point where he was on the battlefields, half dead, they passed him over, he's 
this group of people who's killed off all of his all of his family and people ultimately and yet what does he do he writes to them with arms of mercy and love extending uh, this beautiful message to them there's something beautifully christ-like about that now we started by talking about uh, Mormon's desire not to harrow up the souls of men in casting before them such an awful scene of blood and carnage as was laid before mine eyes. And so we hope that as we've gone through here, the focus isn't in on all of the bad of the Nephites, but rather that it gives you a sense of hope in your own life that regardless of what the opposition is surrounding you, there is, there is great uh, – you have great capacity to be humble, turn to God, repent, plead for his help and his guidance, and receive his, his blessings and ultimately his salvation. Uh, in closing, I want to share with you a story from the Old Testament that many of you may be familiar with, but it's worth repeating here because it's so applicable. There was a kingdom of Syria that was making war against the northern kingdom of Israel, and every time the king of Syria would move his men to a certain place to make the perfect attack, the kingdom of Israel would have their armies perfectly positioned to stop the attack, and this happened multiple times. Eventually, this king of Syria, who may not have been the, the sharpest guy, but he was smart enough to figure out this isn't normal, so he sat down with his, his uh, generals, his captains of his army, and he said, who is it that's the spy? One of you is giving our secrets to the king of Israel because it's impossible that he would know everything we're doing. And one of his uh, captains said, none of us is a spy. There's a man in Israel, he's a prophet, and he tells the king of Israel, everything you say, even in your bedchamber, at which point this uh, king thinks that through and says, well, let's secretly find out where this guy lives so we can go and surround that city or village and capture him so he'll stop telling the king of Israel everything I'm saying. Well, they said he lives in Dothan. So the Syrian army goes and surrounds the city of Dothan where Elisha, this great prophet, lives. The next morning, Elisha's servant comes out of the house and sees the entire village surrounded with chariots and soldiers waiting for the word to come and take Elisha. The servant's really nervous. Elisha comes out of the house and he's not really nervous. He's calm, and the servant doesn't understand. And Elisha says, basically, can't you see? And the servant's wondering, can't you see? And Elisha prays, Lord, open the eyes of the lad that he might see. And he tells the boy, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. At which point the lad's eyes are opened, and he sees the mountain of the Lord, the, the whole sky filled with flaming horses and flaming chariots. Brothers and sisters, Mormon and his little family were completely surrounded by sin and iniquity, 
they had no worldly reason or earthly reason to hope, but Mormon had eyes to see. He knew that when you're on the Lord's side, when you're doing the best you can, even though by worldly standards it doesn't look like a lot, it doesn't feel like it's making a difference, if you put the very best you have on the altar and say, Lord, this is the best I can do today, he is so powerful that he will take our best effort and magnify it and multiply it and uh, bring us the victory in the end, not just in this life but in the eternities. Brothers and sisters, as you face those, uh, those chariots in all of their forms today in your life, please plead with the Lord to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and as you do so and as you cast your eyes upward, you will be reassured that they that be with you are more than they that be with them. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.